and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Thibaut Schreppel, Assistant Professor in European Economic Law at Utrecht University School of Law. We will discuss his article, Antitrust Without Romance. So welcome to the podcast, Thibaut. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I I really enjoyed reading your paper. Uh, and before we start talking about the substance, I just wanted to ask you a question that was on my mind when I was looking at it, which was the file has this amazing cover on the first page, which I've never seen on a law review article before. And I was wondering, is that something that's common with European or French legal publications? Like, where did that come from? I love it. I, I kind of want it for all of my own articles, I, I must tell you. Um, well, actually, it's an idea that I got um, for a paper that I published last year um, on uh, blockchain and antitrust. And what I've done, and actually, you're the first person I'm telling the story, is that I used the, the cover of uh, Bork uh, book on the uh, antitrust war, antitrust paradox, and I um, just used the cover and thought it would be funny to use the cover and just to put, you know, the title of my article on that cover and to see if someone will, you know, recognize the cover, although it's <laughs> all, all red. So, of course, it will be complicated. Um, and so nobody ever noticed, I guess. So I'm giving you the information. <laughs> Starting um, with the scoop. That's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then I thought, well, actually, I published So the cover was red and then I published another paper and I thought, well, you know, it would be easy to identify the paper as the red paper, and then I published the blue paper. Um, and then I thought, well, this one is about romance, so I have to find something a bit romantic. Um, so that is why I used that cover, which is actually the cover of uh, a book of uh, Frederick uh, Hayek. So um, that I, yeah, that I used. Ah, amazing! Very cool. Okay, awesome. Well, it's 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 fantastic. I totally love it, and um, it it definitely caught my eye. So, yeah. so That's kudos cool. on that. <laughs> um, so the title of your article is really interesting as well, right? Antitrust without romance. So why antitrust without romance? Sort of what literature are you referencing with? with that title sure so uh, once again i took the id from someone else how you know academics do all the time i guess um so uh it's basically a, a derivative of the, the the article published by james buchanan who won the nobel prize in economics and he wrote a paper um called politics without romance and i thought uh that so it's a very really short paper and the idea was really interesting was basically to say that, uh, of course, we do need uh, politics because sometimes, you know, why not? It might do good things. Um, but also, we should have a look at the results. And it should be okay to question whether or not the results are, are great. Or if, in fact, some people might use public power uh, for their personal interests and not to benefit the general uh, interests. Um, and, th and so I thought that uh, probably it would be interesting to study if the same was happening in the field of antitrust, especially because now it's such a trendy topic. And, you know, uh, every day nowadays, especially in the U.S., there is a paper in the New York Times or the Washington Post um, dealing with, you know, breaking up tech giants and all that. So I thought, well, now it's so trendy that actually it's possible that antitrust might be used not for you know what it's supposedly doing, 
but for as a tool for the personal interests. Um, and so that is why I came up with the title and strife of that romance. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so Buchanan is known for what's often referred to as public choice theory, which you've sort of obliquely referenced or kind of described already, at least where it came from. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the premises of public choice theory are, sort of why Buchanan thought it was important and sort of what the sort of key insights were just so listeners who might not be familiar with public choice theory will, will understand what you're talking about in the paper. Well, I'll do my best. Uh, so, uh, so I think his basic idea was to say, um, so we have the public interest theory, which is the, the opposite theory, which is to say that, um, sometimes it's better if we can coordinate actions and that is why we need politics, um, in some uh, respects. And um, so that that is one part, but also sometimes actually uh, politics and uh, the power granted to, to some officials is used in a manner that is good for them, but not for the people. And so under uh, the uh, public interest theory, uh, this is presumed. So let's say you see a market failure, you see something which needs to be done, then if the government... Uh, is doing something, it is presumed to be good because you, you did have a market failure after all. And Buchanan's idea was to say, well, uh, it's one thing to identify market failures, but also it would be great if after we've done something, if we could compare uh, the market failure, the initial market failure, and what's happening after you know the action we took. And then we need to balance the two and potentially to prove that, well, yes, there is a market failure, but the, the thing we've done is actually bad, and so it would have been better to let the market failure. And so it was his basic idea. Um, and so he called that um, the uh, public choice theory, um, and he described that as a program. So it wasn't really uh, a theory in a sense of, you know, like uh, the offer and demand or something which is really mathematical, but it was just a way of thinking about the action, the public action, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and if I understand it correctly, I mean, part of the point of public choice theory is that public actors have incentives that may or may not be aligned with the sort of public benefit. So, as you say, right, the fact that you can identify a market failure and then have the government engage with it doesn't necessarily mean the government's going to succeed. In other words, if the incentives for the for the government actors are bad, you could have government failures as well as well as government fixes. Is that is that right? Yes, that's right. So actually it's interesting, but the so the public choice society, which was the debate, the, the first group of scholars uh, focusing on public choice, was initially called the Committee on Non-Market Decision Making. So their idea was to say, well, we need to apply the uh, the mechanism and the way of thinking about markets and market failures, which is people have incentive and sometimes individual incentive is not good for the general good. Um, and you see that very often on markets, of course. Um, and their idea was to say, but we need to apply the same to the people entrusted with public power because those people, although they work for the government and supposedly they should do what is best for everyone, but they are humans after all. And so they will maximize their personal interests. And so we need to study that using the mechanism that we use, you know, to study market failures. Um, and so 
there is one formula which is um, you know um, officials are not angels, and that's the basic idea to say well you know they are humans, and so if they are humans, some of them will do what is uh, best, uh, some of them will do what is best for them only. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, which is, well, sometimes you do, you know, what is best for the, you know, the, the markets or the, the interest you're trying to protect. But at the same time, why not doing what is best for you? Which it could be not a problem at all if the two are aligned. So if what is best for your personal career is also what is best for the country, then it's perfect. Uh, but sometimes the two are not aligned at all. And so you will do something for your personal interests and actually will go against the uh, public interest. And it's where it becomes a bit more tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so Buchanan used the term without romance, uh, it, you know, kind of to imply a way we should and shouldn't think about engagement in economic policy. And I wonder if you could just briefly talk about why you think that is sort of a relevant perspective at this moment in antitrust policy? Ah, oh, so so here actually, I must say that so I've been discussing this paper since it's been published for the, the last two weeks with um, several academics, but also you know with um, uh, people who are not involved in the uh, academic community at all. And they told me, oh, you really think that some people are romantics? And actually, we are not romantic at all because we know that the government will do what is you know, best for them and not for us, uh, So, which is the extreme opposite. Uh, but, the, um, but the basic idea um, was to say, well, sometimes you do have a market failure. We're not discussing that. So I'm not discussing that at all in the paper. Let's presume there is a market failure and that potentially we should do something. Um, what is done um, and what part, if not most of the academic community, at least for antitrust, is doing or is not doing precisely is to study whether or not the thing that we've done is good or is bad. And actually, it's a bit like being in love, right? So the first two weeks is amazing and everything that everything is doing is the best. Uh, and you won't ever question that, right? Because you are seeing the person with the, you know, the, the glasses of love, I guess, the eyes of love. And, and that's the same here, which is to say, if you are not studying the actual impact of the action we took, again, the market failure, then you are, you know, kind of a romantic. You are a bit in love with, you know, public action. And it's actually not, not a good thing. Um, and, and, and you see that very rarely in academic papers or official publications. And actually, I'm sure we will discuss, but none of the three uh, antitrust authorities that I'm studying in the article, which is uh, the European Commission and the two in the US, namely the FTC and the DOG Antitrust Division, they do not ever mention the potentiality of uh, governmental failure. So, and of course, you understand that. Why would they, right? They, I mean, um, what would you say? Well, what we've done is, is bad and please, uh, you should give us less power. It wouldn't make sense, but it would probably make sense for at least academics to, to you know, to study whether or not what they've done is good or is bad. And if we are not doing that, once again, it's because we are, you know, kind of in a romance with them, which is not good, um, I guess. Yeah, and it seems to me in the paper, I mean, you, you suggest that there's a kind of normative move in some 
antitrust scholarship and policy proposals lately, which sort of intersects with public choice concerns relating to antitrust policymakers in a potentially uh, concerning way. Is, is that a fair assessment of, of the point you're making in the paper? Well, um, I think we, we, we see different, uh, different trends which are uh, coming together. Uh, but, but indeed, part of the U.S. academic community is actually um, being, well, very romantic, or at least they are using the romance to then argue for things which probably benefits their personal interests. And you see that coming within uh, antitrust agencies as well. Um, and what I try to explain is that all of that is permitted, actually, uh, because of the design of antitrust agencies. So I'm, I'm not sure whether or not to answer your question right now, but, <laughs> um, but that's a trend um, that is coming from the US and then that, that we see clearly in Europe, and I'm sure we will discuss, but actually the EU Commissioner for Competition um, has been embracing that um, very clearly. Mm-hmm. So, So maybe you could talk about what kinds of incentives you think public choice theory predicts would be salient to antitrust regulators? In other words, sort of what are they going to be reacting to according to this perspective on antitrust policy? Um, so so they will be reacting to um, – so you have d- different hypotheses, I guess. The first is that they do – indeed, they do what is best for the the country or, you know, the goal – uh, of the authority for which they are uh, working, um, which is which of course happens. Um, so, but but also another possibility is that sometimes um, they might do what is best for them personally, and there there is different uh, there are different ways for them to do that. So they could you know do something just to please the person you know which is the plus one just um, you know a rank ahead of them uh, in in the antitrust um, authority, um, but but also it could be that what they are trying to do it's to um, to please. Um, let's say if you work for an interest agency, um, they are uh, funded and they are closely linked with, uh, for instance, the parliaments. And potentially in the U.S., the president who is actually validating the budget, the, the budget of those antitrust uh, com- authorities. So then, what you see is that uh, as an employee of one of those authorities, what you might want to do in order to benefit your personal career is to please, you know, the government. Because why not? Because if you're not if you're not doing that, it's possible that the budget, the you know, the the, the fundings of your uh, antitrust authority will go down, and then eventually will impact you. So you could see that you are uh, maximizing your personal interests with different strategies, whether it is you know directly with your superiors or if it, more the you know uh, broader level with with the the government. Mm-hmm. So, in your paper, you offer not just this kind of theoretical perspective, but also a really kind of interesting and rich data set about how antitrust regulators actually talk about the policy choices that that you're making. And I wonder if you could kind of break down sort of the methodology of your study and why you took that approach and ultimately what you found. 
Uh, sure. So, so what I've tried to do is to to study to uh, which extent they will take that, so public choice, or just let's say the idea of governmental failure, the possibility, into account. Um, and so, what I've done is that I've studied so the three antitrust authorities I was uh, talking about. I've studied all of their official publications to see whether or not I could find you know them mentioning um, expressively public choice or, you know, the, the, the basic uh, concepts, or even if I could find, you know, uh, some uh, hints of them, you know, applying it. And so the FTC used to do it uh, 30 years ago, but not anymore. And so no, actually it's quite, the, the results are uh, quite easy to interpret because none of them are mentioning public choice or seems to take that into account. So then I thought, well, so that's, that's a bit uh, weird, but probably not so surprising. Um, so I thought, well, let's presume that indeed they are uh, captured not only by companies sometime, but also by the government, because once again, the government is in the end, you know, um, uh, the one who's validating the, uh, fundings of those authorities. So then I thought, well, if actually I could find that those antitrust agencies are uh, taking action against public companies owned by the government, then it will be a clear sign that they are totally not captured by governments. But what I found once again is that they, um, so in the US, they don't ever initiate um, actions against public companies, but but you have less public companies that we do have in Europe. So in Europe, it was super interesting because you could see that um, five, 10 years ago, uh, about 15% of all of the action initiated by the European Commission were against uh, public companies. And this is going down, which is surprising because actually the OECD uh, underlined that the part that public companies take in the global economy is increasing. So you would think the more they are they are doing business and the, the more important they become, the more potentially they do things which are anti-competitive. Um, but uh, so you see two opposite trends in a sense: they are more important in the economy, and yet you have less actions against them. And what I found is that the actual EU commissioner did not uh, open any investigation against any public companies in the last five years. So which means that in the years to come, it will definitely go uh, go down. Um, so I thought, well, this is, you know, um, this is just maybe correlation. It's not causation. So it's not the actual proof that antitrust agencies are captured by government, but, you know, it, it's still uh, interesting to, to notice. And so then I went a, a step further and to and I studied all of the speeches given by the actual FTC commissioners, uh, the actual EU commissioner for competition, and the three previous ones to see whether or not I could find, you know, indications that indeed uh, it seems that they are changing their policy because actually it might be good for them, uh, but not actually, you know, tackling the issues on the market. Um, and so uh, it's what I've done. And I don't know if you want me to discuss those results right now or. If sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like what did you find sort of, how did you structure the way that you analyze their responses or what were you looking for and, and what did you find? Um, so 
what I thought is that uh, it would be interesting to actually study, and it's actually a theme now in, in the anti circles, to study whether or not. So we, we talk a lot about the antitrust populism. So it's the idea that, you know, potentially some antitrust uh, policies are uh, coming from uh, populist movements. But actually what I found is that we, we, I, never, I never read any study studying the actual populism within antitrust agencies. Um, and so, uh, it's, so it's what I've done. So I was first looking for um, signs that could show that those agencies are becoming populist. Um, which would be surprising, but it's actually what I what I found um, pretty clearly. And so I thought, well, if they are becoming populist, so I had to read a lot of the literature, you know, on the the public science, politic, political science literature on populism, what it is, and the keywords and the kind of um, um, speeches that that goes along. And so, uh, so one thing that is super clear is that uh, the us versus them is a clear sign of populism. So what you do basically is that you say us, us, the people versus them, and them has to be a minority. And you say, if you give me power, I will make sure that us is actually in a better situation than than before. And you could do that because anyway, them is so small that you will lose, you know, probably 10 votes, but who cares? Because you're going to win like so much more, you know, uh, with the us, which is the the people, the larger community. So I first looked for that, um, and so what is really interesting is that top officials of those antitrust agencies in the past, when they used um, the pronoun us, they referred to us as the agency, so us as the team. You know, us we are working, mm-hmm. we are a team, and I'm yes, I'm the president or you know the commissioner, but I represent the team. Uh, that still exists in the US. So I guess that is good news for you. Uh, but in Europe, there is, there is, uh, that is changing with the actual EU commissioner. Uh, and now when she refers to us, it's us, the people. It's never us, the European Commission. Um, and on the other end, them is uh, always companies. And that also changed. Um, and you could see that changing a bit in the US as well. Um Back in the days, let's say five, ten years ago, so not so long ago, you could see that some of those commissioners were referring to companies using us as well. You know, us, the people, the companies, we're all, you know, in the same boat, so we should do what is best for the community. And now what you see is that it's not us anymore uh, referring to companies, but they use the pronoun them. So, you know, it's clearly the evil companies and actually, in in Europe, um, uh, you see in some speeches that they refer to uh, death threats, uh, referring to those companies. So it's definitely evil, and therefore, because it's evil, we should do something about it, uh, of course. And so um, that is where public choice, you know, come into um, a practice, where it's actually interesting uh, to see they use they use that. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, so it was the first idea was to say, do we have populism? And if we do have populism, is, is it translated into moralism, which is the second part of the analysis? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in order to situate listeners at this point, maybe you could just briefly talk about the kind of abstract goal of antitrust policy, how populism might interact with that abstract goal and also how that interaction might affect the incentives of antitrust regulators. 
Sure. Um, that, that's a big question, actually, uh, which is um, definitely uh, super trendy in Extra Circle. So I'm going to try to do my best. So the basic idea for the last 30 years, there is a consensus, very clear, uh, whether it is among, you know, in the US progressives and, you know, more Republican side, I guess, uh, that the goal of antitrust should be to protect the consumer. And so here and there, you could read that the standard of antitrust, which is the goal of antitrust, is to protect the consumer, and it's called the consumer welfare standard. And so it means that every time an antitrust agency takes action against a company, that agency has to prove that the practice of the company was hurting consumers. And if the agency can do that, then fine, uh, you could actually sanction the company. And if you cannot do that, then the company has done nothing wrong. That is being challenged. And part of it is absolutely not, uh, not a, a populist thing. Some people are saying that the consumer welfare standard is focusing on prices too much, where actually now in the new economy, it doesn't make sense because, you know, to use Google and Facebook and all the services, you are not paying with uh, with money, actually, paying probably with the data, whether or not we should use that expansion, I'm not sure, but that's a different story. And so they'd say that we need to change the standard. So in short, we need to change the goal of antitrust. That is something we should discuss, and I think it's a debate we should have. But what you also see in parallel is that some people are saying, well, actually, we should uh, we should change the standard of antitrust because actually antitrust should be used to fight against all types of things, which is actually not covered in the, the text, the funding text of those agencies. So they would say uh, those agencies are bad because they are big companies. And because of that, big is bad, big is evil. We should do something about it. And we should not even care about the practices of those companies. And that is where you see populism, because obviously, you know, it's not even about studying what the company uh, do on the market, whether or not this is good, this is bad. And, you know, empirical studies, we are far away from all that. It's just the idea that, oh, those tech companies are so big that it's probably uh, super bad in terms of democracy or, you know, um, any type of political reason. And therefore, we should use antitrust not for the thing it is it was created for, but we should use antitrust as a tool to actually uh, sanction those companies, uh, you know, just just for the sake of of them being big big companies. And so that is related to populism, of course, because then you know it's the idea that those big companies are evil and actually doing things which are super bad uh, for the consumer. Um, which sometimes could be true, but once again, antitrust should be about you know empirical evidence and you know being able to prove it. So the practices and not you know the size per se, which in theory it's you know it, it's it's legal to be a big company. Yeah, I mean, it struck me that there was an extra wrinkle in there too, which is in a sense like the populism gives a new potentially new license to antitrust regulators, which they may have incentives to take in the direction the populists want or in some other direction. And in a sense, it's almost like sort of unpredictable, you know, once the populist sort of moralistic thinking about antitrust policy becomes entrenched in terms of you know what the expectations are it's hard to say what the actual policymakers will will do with it well yes because it's actually unrelated to you know any empirical um 
evidence. So then it becomes, uh, of course, legal certainty is then um, is then going down by lots. And what you see is that, of course, now uh, it's not about you know uh, whether or not the practice is good or bad, but it's it becomes indeed a, a moralist use of antitrust, which is just to say, well, you know, uh, this is this is the good versus the bad. And who is deciding on what is good and what is bad? Well, of course, it's just, you know, a few persons. And it's where it's actually impossible for companies to behave on the markets because they don't know what will be decided to be good or bad, um, you know, in the next decision. So that is where mm-hmm. it's actually very much problematic. And it's not a new issue. The use of moral concepts in antitrust has been an issue. And we have a lot of... Um, um, studies uh studying that and once again on you know both uh political sides we reach an agreement to say well moral concept in antitrust is not a good thing because it's actually you know it, it doesn't provide company with a good framework on how to act in certain circumstances and therefore this is why we should take them out of you know the picture um but now it is back because actually it's super convenient you know, if you say, well, antitrust is not about, you know, uh, studying practices and the effect on the consumer or whatever standard you should use, which is a different story. But, you know, uh, it's just that it's bad. It's it's just bad. Trust me, it's bad. Therefore, uh, you should be sanctioned. Well, it's a bit, you know, dis- discretionary to, to say the least. <laughs> so does your paper advocate any particular sort of antitrust actions or is it more about how we should think about structuring antitrust policy more more generally well yes definitely the second option um um so so once again i'm not focusing on you know the whether or not we should change the standard whether or not uh some practices are uh, actually good for the consumer or bad for the consumer uh, there are definitely tons of practices that interest agencies should, you know, um, be, you know, working on and probably sanction because it is probably anti-competitive. Um, and, it, it, and it would be actually, uh, you know, silly to say, well, we should use public choice to prove that sometimes governmental action is not good. But at the same time to say, well, but everything that private companies uh, do is good. I mean, of course it's not. Uh, so it, it should be about, you know, empirical evidence in the end and not the use of political and moral concepts. Uh, so I'm, once again, I'm not focusing on, you know, the some practices or whether or not, I don't know, predatory pricing is true, it exists, that kind of stuff. But the, the second part of the paper was more about to say, well, um, sometimes um, the, the design of interest agencies is made such that it's possible if you use, if you wish to use public power for your personal interest, you can do so as it is designed, as they are designed as of today. And we should probably change that. And so here are some ideas on how to change that. Um, of course, mm. aware that, you know, it's going to be super complicated and I'm not the, the first one to notice that. But, you know, of course, some interest agencies might think, well, but why should we have, you know, less power or a different type of power? Uh, but yet you do have also some people coming from both um, sides of the political spectrum saying that if we could actually find a way to um, to make sure that when antitrust agency do something because they do have you know some empirical basis, then it will actually uh, be better even for them because you know in terms of public trust it's it's much better to act this way. 
So, um, so yeah, the, definitely the, um, how to redesign um, antitrust uh, agencies and also maybe some concepts that they should use or not use as moral concepts. Right, right. So Thibaut, in closing, you make some sort of preliminary observations about ways we might think about changing antitrust policy in order to better avoid potential uh, public choice problems. I wonder if you could talk about those briefly. Uh, Yes, briefly. So um, uh, so I think first it will be interesting to actually – well, there is something which is definitely broken. I think is the 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 how we are actually assessing antitrust authorities, and what you see is that when they send their uh, budget request to the the Senate or the uh, the Parliament in Europe, they also join uh, what is they call the uh, annual assessment form or whatever the name is. And they they focus on you know the fines they are they imposed in the last twelve months, um, as if it was you know a proof that they were doing a good job. And if they are not sanctioning company, then it's a proof that they are not doing a good job. And I think this is this is broken. And we should probably think about another way to assess whether or not they are su- successful, uh, and not to create an incentive for them to find companies just for the sake of finding companies. Although sometimes there is no harm to consumer at least it's not proven in the decision so i'm I'm, I'm give uh, some ideas regarding how we should probably rethink all that um uh then also i I discuss uh some more uh, um micro i guess uh reforms with regards to the personal of interest authorities one of them could be for instance that if you work if you are a top official at some uh, entry authority, maybe it would be a good idea if you cannot actually run for election, for instance, uh, in the next five years. Or, uh, you know, if your uh, mandate will be limited to one term and not two terms, uh, that, that type of um, uh, reforms, I think, could be useful. One which is more um, actually probably um, um, discussed already is whether or not FTC commissioners and top officials should be expert in the field of antitrust. But what I found doing my uh, um, study and studying all of the speeches is that the more they are experts in the field of antitrust, the better it is actually, and the, the least populist they are. So I think it would be also a good idea, you know, if it's not just a politician put there at some point and, um, and not hope for the best in this regard. Um, so yes, so that's, so that's on the more, the uh, institutional side, um, and, uh, some reforms that I propose, which are more, uh, related to, I guess, the substance of antitrust is not to use moral concepts for the reason I briefly discussed. Basically the idea is that, um, what is good, what is bad, what is moral or not moral, immoral just depends on everyone's feeling and sentiment. And it's not actually a good framework, um, so, so that is one. And the, the last point I'm making, and I think this one is super important, is to recognize that antitrust, and if you read the text, is super clear. It's not a statement. So it's not about, you know, uh, stating or doing that, you know, reaching a particular goal. Uh, if we want to do that, fine, we should, we should discuss, you know, if we want companies to be more um, fair, whatever that means, then probably we should discuss of how we should do that. But actually, we cannot use antitrust to do that. And if we do so, we are outside the rule of law. 
So that was the last part of the paper, which is to say antitrust is not a statement. It's just a mean to achieve, you know, competition on the market. And that's it. And then and then we hope that actually the market will be, you know, shaped in a way that is good for everyone. And if it is not, then let's do something. But let's use, you know, the pure politics and not antitrust, um, because it's not about, you know, moral values. Um, it's about, you know, empirical evidence and showing harm to the consumer as, as it is today. So it's a point that is th- th- that is where the shift, I think, is uh, very clear on how some people are trying to shift antitrust to use it just, you know, to make a statement on how they think society should be and not, you know, which is, of course, super personal uh, and not a good thing. Mm, mm, mm. Well, Thibaut, thanks so much for talking to me today. I, I As I said, I, I really enjoyed reading your paper and I think it's a really important intervention into a policy discussion that's super timely at, at the moment. I mean, people are really, this is in the air and it really helped inform my understanding of the policy debate. Well, well thank you for having me. And yes, romance is in the air, That that's for sure. <laughs> and you know, as a French person, it's a bit weird for me to argue against romance, I guess, but still it's what I'm, I'm trying to do. Doing my best. <laughs> Against type. Exactly. <laughs> Hello, this is Beverly Garland. The Federal Trade Commission asks you to look beyond the smiling faces and super promises because the FTC knows that some advertising can be misleading and deceptive. So don't believe everything you see or hear. Beware of extravagant promises and unsupported claims. Check it out before you buy. Shop wisely. You'll save money. This message is brought to you by the Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C.